0: Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6 p.m., where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. My name is Jack McLean, I am the host, and tonight, I have Robert Orgy on the show as our guest. Rob is an expert in the design, monitoring, and inter- interpretation of training and training load in athletes. Built over two decades as an applied sports scientist and coach. He's currently a sports scientist at Track and professor of sports science at Victoria University. Prior to Track, he worked at the Western Bulldogs for seven years and has supervised 15 PhD students to and also a, um, over 80 publications. So, really. Looking forward to our chat, we'll talk about the science side of things, but then also Rob's got that balance between application as well. So for all the coaches listening in, make sure to get your notebook out. Before we start tonight's episode, for those that are new to the podcast, our mission here at Prepare Like a Pro is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast or on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Hi, thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. We'll, uh, we'll start at the very beginning of your career, mate. At what age did you discover you had a, a passion for, for sports science?
1: Um, it, there's a short answer and a long answer to that one, I guess. Um, I think sport was was prominent from a very early age, so I knew pretty early on that working in sport was something that I'd really like to chase. And it's probably as early as first year of university, showing my age a little bit. But there were no sports science degrees uh, available back when I studied, so I started in 1990, for example, my my undergraduate education. Uh, so I I did a physical education teaching degree. Uh, and I don't know if it was sport was the thing that became really attractive or that teaching was really unattractive in some way. So teaching high school kids or primary school kids. Um, love them, love being involved with them. Don't want it as my job and no offence at all to the teachers out there. Uh, I know for some it's a calling, it just wasn't mine. Uh, yep. So, so be, I had um, some family influences as well that really you know, training was, was something that we talked about a lot. So my dad's a runner he, he's been a runner um, well, all his life basically still competing at, at 85 years of age in athletics um and his his side of the family were all involved in harness racing so the training of horses uh, for competition so there were always discussions around training uh, and, and that was the thing that, that I was probably most interested in was the the training of athletes whether they were horses or people or whatever it was. And, and I think that with a little bit of knowledge gained early in the undergrad, that, that was the time. So it was first or second year uh, of my undergraduate degree. It was like not working in sport is where I want to be. I don't want to be a teacher, but I want to get the knowledge from this course that, that I could then apply in a different way. Uh, so, yeah, that was the genesis of it for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the household, that's amazing. And, and yeah. I have to ask, what's your father still competing in? What, what events?
1: Uh, a whole range of events. They run at different distances in Masters Athletics. So, you know, there's 60-metre sprint, for example. There's um, 600s, there's 1500s, etc. cetera. So he was always kind of a middle-distance steeplechaser um, yep. or up to steeplechase level and, and still doing it. Uh, and my mum started athletics, I think it was about four, maybe five years ago. Uh, so she's turning 80 this year. Apologies, mum, for giving your age away. Um, but uh, she should be proud of it. Um, she'd never competed in any sport at all her entire life and took up uh, athletics at around 75 years of age and, and she's won state championships um, uh, in the last couple of years. I, I do tell her it's because everyone else is no longer alive in her age group and she's uh, lived long enough to be successful, but no, that's not, that's not true. It's, um, and look, they're an inspiration, I think, to my children as well. You know, it's, it's great for my kids to see that their grandparents are actually competing in sport uh at that age so yeah it's um it's it's nice it's nice to come from that background where it's normal i guess and a a lot of kids don't have that um which i think is a probably a global problem and beyond the scope of today's conversation
0: but they um i'd love to know the dynamic of uh with all your knowledge with load monitoring uh (laughs) do you get involved with with your parents or (laughs) oh no (laughs) Um, oh no they'd be too old school to understand
1: (laughs) yeah um maybe I'm a lot like my father, but I think he thinks he knows it all. Um, So um,
0: No, we, we stay right out of that. side. Yeah. I mean, still competing at 85 and and getting performance results that your mum's got as well, that it's working. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's not all doom and gloom with their training. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And what about the horse side of things? Is that ever something that you've had interest with in terms of, because I imagine no. for, for horses that you can't have any subjective uh, monitoring. Tool, <laughs> no. so that would be all, all objective. So. Uh,
1: okay. Yeah, um, it, it actually isn't. Um, I, I think it was always there. So my dad's cousins were, were heavily involved as trainers um, in harness racing. So for me, it was it was very interesting, the process. But uh, I'm a bit scared of horses. Yeah. You know, they're 600 kilograms of animal with their own brain that might decide one day that they don't like you very much. So I, I stayed well away from them, but so it was more just that in the periphery there that there, there was always, you know, once a week when I was, when I was a child, so 10 years of age, we'd go out to the farm, which was in Deer Park in Melbourne, uh, sort of right at the entrance of Caroline Springs these days. Um, there's a, an overpass there where the farm used to be. And my dad would, would help train the horses on a Saturday morning just because he loved it. Um, and that was his release of, of getting out with the horses. And my brother and I were just sort of hanging around, um, you know, driving the, the car around the paddock and, and stuff like that, but just, just listening and absorbing, I guess. Um, and again, I think that those conversations around training become normal conversations. They're just yeah. something you're exposed to all the time. It's not a concept that, you know, as a university student, you suddenly start to hear around periodizing training. Uh, it's just something that was, was always there. Um, you know, talking about horses needing to freshen up or this one needs a little bit more work than some of the others or it responds yeah, right. better. And so it's, you know, we're talking about individual responses of athletes yeah. without yeah. knowing we're talking about individual responses of athletes. So, yeah, it was just, it was just there uh, and accessible, which was great.
0: Yeah. And for the students listening in um, that are, maybe they're, they've entered into a degree and it's not quite resonating with them, like you mentioned, teaching just wasn't quite, um, flowing for you and, and you knew there was something in sport. What, what was your step at that point? Did you catch up with someone who was working in sport? Did you do a bit of your own personal research? Take us through sort of how you approached that, that, I guess, crossroads
1: time. Yeah. was um, an interesting one. It was, it was around some of the staff. So some of the staff at the university uh, were involved in sport, at least on the periphery and probably more on the coaching side, uh, to, to be honest. And then there were just again, it's it's conversations. There were some students who were a few years ahead of me um, that uh, I I had a lot of respect for, and, and then got to know. Once I'd finished my undergraduate degree, I, I commenced a masters at the same university and didn't complete it. But but that's when I, I really got to know Stuart Cormack and Russell Jarrett really well, for example. Um, and and they were certainly two of the the really early influences um, on just having a really firm philosophy of training and what they were doing. They were working at St Kilda Football Club at the time or had been. And um, it was just that, no, we're doing it this way because here's why we're training in this way and here's why we don't do that. So really confident in what they knew and, and what they didn't know, I guess, was, was uh, one of the, the big ones. And for me then it was it weaseling my way in. So it was teaching in, in gym instructor type courses. Uh, it was called VicFit yep. back in the day but then also you know, teaching in level one strength and conditioning coach courses, a level two course, I think I taught in um, cycling coaching level one courses. So just having a bit of physiology knowledge that could then be applied in those settings just broadens your network, uh, I think, over time. So it wasn't a clear path that I could see, that's for sure. Uh, and it took a long time for that path to become clear. And I think these days it's probably easier uh, with, with the wide range of placements that are available to, to students both at undergraduate and master's level. I think that the industry connections that nearly all universities who are active in this space, especially in Australia, have partnerships with the industry in sport. Um, none of that was really there uh, when I was um, studying. So it was it was a longer, longer burn, but the, the passion was there and the interest was there um so in in second year of uni i I also started helping out uh, with some of the resistance training teaching um they needed access access to a gym which i just happened to be working in a gym and uh, could get them access uh, at a local gym and and as well why don't you help out with some of the practical stuff okay happy to help out so again they're getting some sort of practical experience of teaching um adults if you like young adults definitely and some of them were, were okay athletes as well but just being in and around, showing them some things, uh, I think helped a lot as well with the passion and and like like you pot- potentially and, and like many others, that strength and conditioning seemed to be the path that I was most interested in. Uh, just had no idea how to how to follow it at that stage.
0: Yeah, yeah. So just jump as many opportunities as, as you can and and build your network base.
1: Yeah, and yep, definitely
0: as well. So that, like there is like you said with it. With, Asgar, and there's plenty of other specific courses that you can do um, to meet people yep. and hone your craft. But, and what about, um, you mentioned Stu and Russell, what about some other strong influences in your career early days?
1: Yeah, it was so probably two, two of the lecturing staff stood out. So Paul Ford being one who had um, different ideas on training to, to what I'd been exposed to uh, up until that stage. So he, he, was, he was quite challenging in a lot of ways, and I probably still is actually. Um, probably still challenges a few but it was it was for me it was really really good to get a different perspective on on training and really functional type training that can be done um, and then I, I had a, an exercise physiology lecturer uh, Mark Fabreo, who uh, for those that know Professor Mark Fibreo, um, you'll know him as a, as a brilliant medical researcher these days but he was back then he was Probably still dabbling in some triathlon, he'd been uh, quite a successful age group triathlete um, in his in his time, uh, and so lots of conversations with him around training. And and back then he was dead certain that he knew everything about training. I'm sure he softened over the years as we all have. Um, so there were some really interesting conversations and um, perhaps even you know heated sort of arguments that um, you know Stu and and Russ and, and I would would have with Mark around training yeah. and you, know, you shouldn't be doing it this way. Well, why? Uh, so I think that, that that is as valuable as finding someone that their ideas resonate with you. I think that um, finding someone who has different beliefs is probably your biggest opportunity to actually grow and learn because it forces you to actually think about your own position a, a lot more than you would have if someone just said, yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah, no, you're doing the right thing. So am yeah. I? So Yeah. yeah. So, so they were, they were two um, at, at RMIT where I did my undergrad and started the masters that were were pretty early uh, ones that just just got me thinking, um, and in a really positive way as well. So, so that was that was pleasant. And then it wasn't wasn't until later on when I, I, I got a job at Victoria University, but not anything anywhere near fitness or uh, or sport or anything like that. It was in a recreation leadership course. Um, so on the back of a, a job that I'd taken when I decided that teaching wasn't for me after I'd finished my undergrad degree. I was employed at Northern TAFE in Melbourne running or basically managing two gyms. They had one, uh, two gyms on different campuses, but also helping run on-campus activities for students, trips away for students, you know, all, the, all the fun stuff for, for TAFE students. And I, I didn't think it was a dead-end job at the time, but I certainly didn't think it was going to lead anything, anywhere worthwhile. But it, it ended up being the one that got me the job at VU, which enabled me to manoeuvre myself into where I wanted to be at VU. Uh, And that was the beginnings of conversations with my then head of school. He said, well, you need to do a PhD. Um, You're you're employed here at the moment. You're lucky to be employed without a a PhD. You need to get one. Go and talk to some of our other staff and uh, see if if you can find a supervisor and get started on that journey as soon as you can, Uh, which was great advice. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very good advice. Uh, And so, yeah, I did. I started talking to some of the other staff and with physiology being probably more of my interest. Um, That led me to a few conversations and and one with Professor Mike McKenna, who ended up being my PhD supervisor. uh, He's one of of the leaders in in knowledge on sodium potassium pumps in muscle. So around the the excitation contraction coupling process in muscle. And the way I recall our first conversation is that it went for about 18 months um, and it was Mike telling me everything I didn't know about sodium potassium pumps. I'm sure that wasn't the conversation but that's as I recall it. And it was around ideas that, you know, for, for, for studies. And it was all the things that he'd like to do around sodium, potassium pumps, basically. And I'm just, uh-huh, uh-huh. What are these things? How, how do they work? How do, you, how do you measure them? What do you do? And so it, just, it was literally starting at ground zero with my knowledge. And then right at the end of the conversation, uh, he dropped just this little thing right in front of me, which was Oh, and the AIS wants to do some study on altitude and, and look at sodium pumps. That's like bang, that's the one. So yeah. connection. That's sport. I uh, just per- perfect opportunity at the, at the perfect time. Um, so I begrudgingly uh, studied around sodium potassium pumps uh, for the the link into to the AIS, um, and so that was that's where the the real. Um, heavy sports science influence started for me uh, because Mike's not a sports scientist. He would never claim to be one, but our project just dovetailed beautifully into the altitude work that the AIS had been working on. So Alan Hahn and Chris Gore uh, being the two prominent ones that um, just got taken under their wings. Uh, David Pine was involved on the periphery. Dave Martin was involved on the periphery as well. So just to have these brilliant sports scientists literally at your disposal and um you know for those that know dave martin for example you, you can just wind him up and, and listen to him talk for a few days uh, david pioneer quieter and more considered but just as knowledgeable uh alan hahn just you know literally one of the the fathers of sports science in australia you know pioneering work at the ais and and Chris Gore, different uh, again, but so passionate about altitude, but also the quality of data that you're collecting because uh, Chris was running the lab standards accreditation scheme there um, as his day job, if you like, while being a brilliant altitude researcher on the side. So I had crazy mind versus um, all things known about sports science and physiology up until that point uh, and rigorous data collection. And John Hawley was the other one involved in, in the project as well. So. Yeah, you know, a different perspective again. A, a incredible high class research team that that were so Mike, my, my official supervisor, but but each of the others, you know, unofficial supervisors for me during my PhD. So I, I can't even begin to think how much I learnt uh, over those few years that, that I got to spend uh, working closely with them and then collaborate uh, with, especially Chris, on, on later projects as well. So, yeah, that, they were the ones that sparked, yeah, sports science is the career that I want because I get to to study and understand training in a, in a depth that I'll, I'd never have done as a practitioner, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, and and I love the process. Yeah. Like I really enjoy the process of a question's asked and then there's a process to try and answer it. Uh, and at the beginning, you might have a, a bit of an idea of where it's going to go, but you really don't know. You know, it's it's original research, it's new information by its nature uh, and that's exciting, that discovery of new knowledge, whether it's incremental <laughs> progression or whether it's, you know, some quantum leap, don't actually see in sport, but, you know, some large leap, if you like, in, in knowledge on an area, it's just exciting. Um, so, yeah, that, w- that was the one. And, and if you're not going to be inspired by that team, <laughs> you're in the wrong career, guaranteed. Yeah. Now you've done well to
0: put yourself in another great environment, like you mentioned, your upbringing was influential, but to be, you know, like you said, with the timing and, and how hard you worked to get to that point, of course, you know, to get yeah. there and then you um, made the most of it. And what, in that environment, is that where you started to see Australia start to shift, where sports science started to become, or well, we started to be world renowned for, for sports science?
1: I think we were probably already there. So that was uh, around 1998. Um, So beginning of me being up at the AIS and then the lead up to the Sydney Olympics. You know, we were running a a major altitude study um, in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics. So just being in and around the AIS uh, because I'd spend weeks there at a time when we're running the study was just an incredible place to be. And then it wasn't just the physiology staff, of course, you know, you've got the biomechanics staff, you've got the coaches that are, that are coming through, the athletes that are, that are coming through various training camps and testing uh, in the lab space. So the way that it used to work in that department is that you're absorbed into the department as a staff member effectively. So you, yes, you're running your project and you're doing your stuff, but you're actually asked your opinion on things uh, in, a, in a legitimate way. Uh, and able to to give an opinion if you feel like you've got something to add um and i think that that was uh, almost certainly alan's influence on the whole department uh, just genuinely caring man that was really just interested in learning uh, and interested in in mentoring people so that they could grow as well so the yeah just just super exciting place to be
0: and with, from a uh, workload point of view, for, for those interested in doing their PhD in elite sport, yeah. um, how, how do you manage that? Like, what, like you mentioned, obviously, it's a great opportunity to get that work experience and to, for people to ask about how to apply the science um, and, and helping out the, the environment um, for performance. But obviously, that's also taking your time and energy away from, you, from your research. So how did you get that – I guess balance is probably the wrong word, but how did you manage –
1: um, so some would argue I didn't manage it particularly well uh, in that my PhD took longer than perhaps it should have. <laughs> and so uh, and as a supervisor now, I could understand the frustration of my supervisors at the
0: time. Would it, would it be about double, do you think, those that you've seen, those that do it in high performance sport?
1: Um, doesn't have to be. Uh, so I've supervised some that you know, ha- have been able to finish on time or even slightly early, would you believe? Okay. Um, so even that, whether they're they're part time on their thesis and they they get it done in full time equivalent, if you like. So instead of having three years, you've got six years if you're part time, uh, yep. or those that manage to study full time and work full time uh, whilst they were doing it. Um, so Matthew Innes is a great example at the Western Bulldogs that managed to get his PhD done on time whilst working full time and being a dad to a couple of kids. You know, there's yeah, wow. There's ways of doing it, and, and Stu Cormack, to go back to you know, one, of, one of the early influences on me, um, did his PhD whilst working full-time and, and decided to have another crack at judo after having some time out and dropped a couple of weight divisions, I believe, to fight at nationals uh, whilst working full-time at West Coast while doing his PhD. And it's just like, mate, that's crazy. How
0: like, many days you know, have some, in a day?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> how many months in a day, I think, for some of these people. And it's like. <laughs> It's, it's the ultimate reality check when you think you're busy and then you meet someone and you go, no, I'm not busy. <laughs> I could fit a lot more in. So, so yeah, look, it's, it's really hard. So the way that our industry-based PhDs work is that we typically want them to have some sort of servicing role in the sport or the team that they're engaged with. One is that they're going to understand their data a whole lot better. They're going to understand the questions of coaches a whole lot better. They're equally going to be able to feed back to coaches and get more coach buy-in, which is critical uh, if you're running research projects in an applied setting. Uh, and it just makes it more valuable for both partners. Um, so that the sport or the, so whether it's the VIS or whether it's a sport at the VIS or uh, one professional team or a league or whatever it is, you have to add value and, and PhDs can be a slow burn sometimes. So for them to be able to give daily value becomes critical. Uh, to that relationship working, uh, so yeah, that's yeah. There's no great answer on it. Uh, I think that you need a, a really good person at the industry end who understands at least somewhat the the process of a PhD, whether they've done one themselves or not. They at least understand the process. They understand there's going to be busy times on the student from the research end, uh, but it's just managing that that whole interaction. And I think we're we're getting better at it as well as. A lot of people in Australia now have been involved with having a PhD student at their club or in their environment, so they're more used to you know the ebbs and flows of activity and, and how it can work. But yeah, you, you, you have to speak the language of sport. You have to you know, be kind of invisible there. You don't want to be the one sticking your head up above the parapet and uh, offering more than you should. So know your know your place and know your role as the student. Uh, and have good industry support for it as well and a good industry understanding of what's realistic and what's not
0: and um from from Matthew and and Stu what did you draw on those guys to to increase your productivity what was some sort of standout (laughs) well
1: Maddie was well after I'd finished mine (laughs) so that's um Oh, I, I think it's just seeing the work ethic uh, and seeing seeing them challenge themselves um, in ways that, that aren't quite normal like stew dropping weight for to fight in a lower weight division whilst you know still actually being active and, and his brain working properly and uh, being able to do his day job just just how they actually just day to day do that and, and manage that um, so Maddie was was inspirational in the uh, and I, I don't think he'd mind me saying that he, he's not necessarily a, a natural student. You know, he's he's very, very much in the applied camp, but he engaged with the PhD process and just worked his butt off with it. Um, he really, really put the effort in. And if you're organised and you put the effort in as a PhD student, you're, you're two-thirds of the way there, really. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly things that just watching how they how they. Just continue to focus uh, on achieving that goal is impressive, and, and that's certainly something that I've tried to apply in various forms in life.
0: Yeah, and you, yeah, you've you've helped yeah, successfully um, complete fifteen PhD students. So obviously, work ethic is huge, and making the most of every day. And, and like you said, it can it, quite, it can help from a motivation point of view by having another purpose outside of the PhD to help with the monotony. And, but you also mentioned support and how important that is um, from, the, from the workforce and I guess having empathy because they've done it before. Um, mm. is, it, is it something that you think students uh, need to almost you know, communicate on how they're going with their support team or is it more on, more on the support staff to be, have the awareness that he's doing his PhD, she's doing a PhD, I need to check in with them and have a formal sort of weekly meeting or monthly check-in, whatever it might be?
1: I think it probably depends on the personalities of the people actually in each of those roles Uh, but certainly it's like working with athletes you want those conversations on how your athlete is coping with the load right now that's Mm -hmm. that's one of the most important conversations that you can have with your athlete it's the same with with people that work for you in in a team setting or or whether it's a phd student that you're supervising so I don't think I've always got that balance right. I think there's been times where students have been scared to come forward and say they're struggling uh, until things becomes obvious that they're struggling and then it becomes, uh, right, let's put this back together and and try and put things in place and and try and get it back on track. And that's a natural thing for, I think, pretty much every PhD student who's ever done one, that there's there's times when it looks like the wheels are falling off, uh, things aren't working. Um, In my own PhD, it was you know, doing biochemical analysis on, on muscle samples with no biochemistry formal training in anywhere in my undergrad or anywhere else. Uh, so starting from, from scratch uh, effectively in that and then things not working literally sometimes for months, so months of troubleshooting on, on one assay to measure one thing in muscle that we actually never got working properly and it didn't feature in my PhD at all. Uh, in the end, and and to this day, I still think it was probably the most exciting part that was around calcium regulation uh, in muscle. But we just we just couldn't get there. Uh, and then, unfortunately, we had a catastrophic failure and, and lost the samples. So the samples are gone; uh, can never never be got, got again unless we replicate the study, which I don't think we'll be doing that. So um yeah there's there's certainly times when when things go horribly wrong like in any work setting you know sometimes you're running a project and things just go wrong so having that that open conversation with people i think around you that can help is just critical just critical and I, i'd like to think i've got better at that uh, i can be a hard taskmaster at times i think so uh hopefully i'm softened a little bit in my old age
0: yeah oh no doubt mate you've got the you must to <laughs> be able to help that many people get such a hard feat. Um, and and it, it, you can, it makes sense to, you know, it is a hard challenge to take on, like you said, like an athlete trying to pursue high performance and being in that mm. peak, peak condition, uh, no different to someone trying to beat that, that feat from an academic point of view. Was yeah, true. Prefer- going back to your mm. career when you were in the AAS at that point was, when did you sort of recognize, okay, I, I'm in, you know, you, you're seeing the applied side of things and you've done, some some coaching which we'll get into in a second but did you know at that point at being a professor was something on the cards for you that you were wanting to work towards or was it no. much just taking that opportunity <laughs> on as a time
1: yeah um no i'm not sure anyone who starts in academia thinks that they're going to be a professor one day i think it's a little bit like my mum and her athletics you you live long enough you'll eventually get there uh, working in academia um no for me it was it was around that applied thing still. Uh, so I actually started coaching cyclists whilst doing my PhD. So having that exposure to, to really good quality athletes that we had as participants, there was one that I gelled, gelled with quite well and he just you know, we sort of just kept having conversations around training and uh, it got to the point when he'd finished in the project, it was like, well, would you like to coach me? And I said, well, I've never coached a cyclist before. Um, I'm happy to have a go. Uh, and, and we started, and I think we worked really well together. And, and he, he was a great responder to altitude training, which I think really helped uh, and it was something that we were able to go back to a few times. But I, I, I don't know how many mistakes I made in, in the coaching of him as an athlete, but I certainly, I reckon I learned as much from him as, as he did from me. Uh, and we're still on good terms today, which is a good sign. Um, so that was Christian Snorrison. Uh, so he was, uh, he was a, a really great one to work with, uh, because he, he'd ask questions and he but he'd also follow the training so once we agreed on the training he'd, he'd follow it he was diligent with it um, he'd give feedback on how it felt or, or what what he thought was missing and and so on so so that that was a really enjoyable process uh, for me and, and Snoz had some success and you know when when one athlete has some success that you're coaching that often brings others uh, that, that want to be coached as well and it, it kind of snowballed for a while and Ended up coaching a guy called Rob Young, who, who was quite entrepreneurial, still is actually. And uh, in fact, I've, I've gone back to coaching Rob as he was a master's athlete, perhaps me as a master's coach these days, I don't know. Uh, and um, so he, he was looking at starting a professional cycling team, which, which he did. Uh, so we had a professional cycling team. I think we we're Australia's first professionally registered continental team. Uh, this was before the, nas- before the National Road Series existed in Australia, where there's uh, a bunch of teams these days. Um, and we won the Oceana uh, UCI Championship uh, in our first year there uh, and had some, some brilliant riders, uh, Rob McLaughlin, a, a Barcelona Olympian who hung the bike up for a number of years and decided to come back to cycling strong as an ox and could climb when he shouldn't have been able to with the size of him. Uh, just an incredible athlete, um, you know, second at, at Australian National Championships behind Robbie McEwen, green jersey winner at the Tour de France. You know, select group of four riders at the end, which included you know a guy called Cadel Evans who got dropped from that group. So yeah, well, yeah. things like that just were just really exciting. So I actually thought cycling coaching was probably the path I was going to go down. And I did apply for a job at a at State Institute of Sport as a, as a cycling coach and, and got down to the last two, didn't get it in the end, um, which is, that, that's fine. Uh, that happens. <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> Uh, that's probably a, another good message for people is don't, don't be too put off when you miss out on jobs because you can only control the process that you put in to apply for that job. You can't control the quality of the other people that are applying and you certainly can't control the decision that's made. So um, so that was an, an early learning there. Uh, and then just kept, kept going with coaching and there was uh, an opportunity to coach in South Korea for a short period of time, which nearly again led to full-time employment over there. But was at a point where I needed a full-time secure gig and the academic jobs were the ones that, that I landed. So I uh, sort of simultaneously landed one at Trinity College in Dublin of all places, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful old university and, uh, of course, a beautiful town, um, but, but also University of Canberra at the same time, so I took the Australian option, which just a, a better fit with family life and other things at the time. So, yeah, I guess it, that won out at the time. Yeah. And then it was ways of trying to integrate the two. So using the, the academic role and, and cycling coaching as a consultancy type proposition for the university and, and so on, which I continued to do until I, I got the job at the Bulldogs. And that was uh, the end of the cycling coaching for a few years.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's, thanks for sharing. That's, it goes to show in our industry, it's helpful to have a few different experiences to lean on. Like that happened for you early on and you continued taking on these opportunities and obviously Mm. there's a lot of work that goes into that but it seemed that it helped you like when you said from a personal point of view you needed full-time work and you could lean on if it wasn't flowing that way with high performance sport at that particular time due to competition you could lean on your academic side which is Mm. if you didn't have that you know it makes things quite stressful so (laughs) yeah very (laughs) very I hope you're enjoying this episode with Rock. For all the data analysts out there and sports scientists, you'll absolutely love our episode 20 with Ben Darwin. Here's a short clip from that episode. You know, in terms of key areas for development, because I know that's something that you, you worked in as well, are the, You are know, there trends that you've seen now in successful teams um, that you think are really important when working with developing teams or athletes?
2: Um. What I would say for a young athlete is, is don't make a decision based on money. Make a decision based on on, on a club that has a history of developing people yep. and a club that has a history of patience. And although this might sound sort of counter, when I, when I made the Wallabies, um, I was on the bench for a long time. But what that actually gave me is a lot of faith that if I went in and I didn't perform straight away, they would also take their time yeah, that's in, true. with me. Yeah, now, with, with clubs that are development clubs, development clubs will, you know, it's not about how much you earn at the start. But let's take, let's take you know, um, let's take rugby league, for example. If you go to a club like the Melbourne Storm and you stick at it, there's a very, very strong chance you're going to play for Queensland or New South Wales and State of Origin. Mm. There's a very strong chance you're going to play for Australia. Um, but you're going to be part of one of the highest cohesion teams of all time
0: if you haven't listened to the full episode with ben that was just a small taste highly recommend going to episode like a pro podcast to listen to the full interview with ben darwin now back to the episode with robert augie hope you enjoy is that a that is that one of the reasons why you're quite strong on phd students getting work experience as well and getting involved oh
1: it's it's critical for them um but it's probably well, it's it's partly because I, I want to help mentor people that are working directly in sport because that's the passion for me is still that direct in high-performance sport. Um, so I, I get to live vicariously through PhD students and projects that we do these days rather than that hands-on side necessarily, although, yep. as I say, yep. I have recommenced coaching cyclists. Um, so it's probably a function of of wanting to do that, but also just the projects that I'm interested in. You know, I, I want to do projects that actually have an application um so i'm i'm certainly not a, a bench top scientist if you like that's into knowledge discovery for the for the sake of the knowledge for me seeing it applied and applied as soon as possible in the professional or the elite sporting environment that that's the bit that's enjoyable to me um so yeah i guess that's where i'm the value add to coaches and, and others uh, or people like me in that sports science role that's that's what we're striving to do is to make the process a little bit better to get better results uh, ultimately. So I get to do that across multiple sports these days, which is nice.
0: Yeah, and, and on that, for a second, understanding both perspectives, what do commonly those that are, that are coaches um, get wrong with, with the science? And then conversely, what are the, the scientists that haven't had experience in, in sport potentially get wrong with understanding? Ooh, wrong, code, think,
1: wrong's a hard word. Hard word, Jack. Yeah. We're um, <laughs> not
0: wrong, but perception is, is skewed.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, room for improvement, maybe, or yeah, something. Yeah. Think, things they yeah. could work on. Um, yeah. So I think some of the things that I've seen with coaches, and, and that's having been, as I say, working on the periphery through supervising students across, uh, well, pretty much all the football codes. Sorry, not Gaelic or, or NFL, but certainly in Australia, you know, all the football codes there's coaches who don't want to know um mm. so that they won't allow the science to actually influence their, their day-to-day running of things uh, and that's that's not necessarily the fault of the coach there's some incredibly knowledgeable coaches out there that do know from doing um and that the science is is going to add maybe a tiny bit to what they do but it, it might interrupt the way that they think or the way that they operate too much for them to be able to implement it. So, yeah, sure. um, so just having an idea on something that could be done differently that might work doesn't mean that it's actually a- feasible to to introduce it into an environment. Um, so so I think that coaches who aren't willing to em- embrace an idea and, and I guess take a risk, uh, and that yeah. that also is understandable because um, yeah. it's not usually the sports scientist that gets sacked with a win-loss record. It's the yeah. head coach that would get sacked. Um, so there's, there's more skin in the game for them in, in a lot of ways um, with, the, with the whole process. So, so that, that is the frustrating one at times where you just think, oh, if only we could do this, yeah. then that, mm-hmm. that and that I think would be a lot better and we'd get better outcomes. Um, but again, as sports scientists, we only know our area, right? So we, we are not going in there, as, especially when I'm working in football, I'm not going in as a football expert by any stretch of the imagination. So to assume that I know better, I think, is a really dangerous thing. Um, I certainly know my area better than anyone else at the club, and rightly so. That's why they employed me. But to think that I know better than all of the others involved in putting the program together, I think, is a, a pretty arrogant view. And, and that probably answers your second one around sports scientists, is that you know the arrogance that you think that you know everything around the sport um and that you could do the whole thing uh and those that that cross over into becoming the coach when they shouldn't um and so yeah there's there's been certainly seen examples of that happening where, where people just it's the same old thing you, you don't know what you don't know um yep. so just yep. be, be very very careful with that uh, play your role certainly and, and have challenging conversations but have them in a respectful way in the right environment at the right time so a challenging conversation with a coach around a process is not one that's had, held in front of players, for example. Uh, and it's, or, or even other coaches, you know, it's a one on one. And it's a, hey, how about, uh, say, so it's how you broach it, how, how you approach it, where you do it, when you do it. Uh, and I think that it's natural when you enter an environment like that as a young person that, that has some expertise because you wouldn't get your foot in the door otherwise you think you can add a lot of value uh, by pushing, pushing, pushing. And I think a lot of the time you're actually much better off doing the bit that you're meant to do. And in the background, knock yourself out, work on the data any way you want and look for patterns and look for ways that things could be done better. But until that idea is concrete in your mind, it stays in your mind. Uh, It's not one that's shared um, with others, I don't think. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, Hold on on for a period of time. And and would you, in your experience in those situations, Do you like, like you said, give it a bit of time and let it digest within yourself, and then would you go to a a colleague and sort of talk shop for a bit, or do you feel once you've digested it and you've you've sort of filtered what's relevant, and then you would then sort of chat with the coach?
1: Yeah, so certainly in my experience in the AFL, it was uh, my relationship was closest with the high performance manager. So um, the way that it was structured in the time that I was there is that, that I'm working directly with the high performance team, if you like. So it was a conversation with them, uh, and I had a, a variety of people that I got to work with in my time at the Bulldogs. Um, so, Aaron Callett was in the role uh, initially, uh, for example. Been at Cricket Australia now for for a number of years. Um, Cam Falloon was was next, and you've had Cam on, on the podcast, Body Fit Training these days. Um,
0: yeah, Aaron's coming on in a couple of weeks as well.
1: Excellent, excellent. Yeah, um, getting the band back together. Uh, And then then post-cam was was Bill Daverin who uh, came in with um, a non-football background in a lot of ways and and challenged a few things uh, and certainly challenged me uh, with uh, simple questions, which can be the most dangerous ones sometimes. Uh, So I think that just having those people that you can talk to directly at the right time again in the right way, and and hopefully they've got an open mind uh, as well and they're happy to be challenged and and happy and and open to, to have discussions about it as well. Which isn't always the case. Um, like you can have arrogant sports scientists, you can have arrogant high performance managers who say, like, no, this is my program. We're doing it my way. But, okay, here's yeah. your report. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the thing, and I'm not saying those people I've mentioned were like that, by the way. <laughs> I just one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. Uh, but yeah, that, that would be my first port of call was always high performance manager. And then, Sometimes, and, and early on, we had a, a sports science committee where we had some assistant coaches on it as well. Uh, and okay. again, in my experience in AFL, the development coaches were the ones most interested in the, the application of science and had the most open minds as well. Um, it was a really interesting, just, just viewing, I guess, the AFL community. It was, it was often people that weren't long out of playing that got those development roles which was interesting in itself. I know it's good to have some some knowledge and some currency of players that are just out of the game at your club, but I don't think necessarily makes them a development coach, which is very much a teaching role as, as I see it. Yeah. Um, and, and then others who who really were, were more for that teaching mindset. So Brad Gotch was one uh, early and then Simon Dalrymple, both at the Bulldogs, that they were the ones that uh, I think had – I had the best sports science conversations with um, some of the other assistant coaches early on, Yeah, you know, Chris Bond was, was another really good one, for example, that they were really prepared to dig into it and, and listen and, and try and absorb and, and, uh, and just be challenged a little bit themselves, even Leon Cameron uh, when he was at Bulldogs as well. So so yeah it was it was kind of a structure and a hierarchy of of ways of doing it, uh, and uh, early on it was Rodney Eda as head coach, and it, and things got to rocket only if we really thought that it was something worthwhile.
0: And you know for the unique working environment uh, for for new sports scientists going into that environment um, for the first time, uh, you mentioned the importance of understanding when to when to you know, speak to the coach when to speak to the and mm. understand the hierarchy of where you sit in things and who to communicate with. Um, is, it, is it a matter of going back to what you've mentioned before? Don't just react straight away when, a, when an idea comes to your mind, just sit with it for a little bit longer. Do you think that's an important?
1: Yeah, really important so that you're actually clear in your own thoughts. Um, yeah. And the worst case scenario is when you're asked a direct question by someone that perhaps you should be speaking directly with. Perhaps you need to share your opinion with others uh, in the first place. So, as I say, I worked closest with the high performance staff. So, if I was asked a question around performance, that was a conversation that they had to be in uh, because that's that's their role more so than mine even. Um, so, it was really important not to overstep and you know throw them under the bus inadvertently or, or whatever. Um, Find to disagree with them again behind closed doors and and come out with a united voice, but really tricky one. But Coaches aren't even the worst ones at a football club and and no offense to all the board members at football clubs, but they are by far the worst ones to ask you questions Mm -hmm. uh, because they are uh, highly successful people usually in their own fields. Um, So they're not not used to someone saying no uh, to them for a start. Uh, They're used to having quick answers on things uh, and they're madly passionate supporters. So when you put all of that together, yeah. it is yeah. an absolute yeah. just recipe for disaster, engaging with a board member yeah. in the stairwell or, or whatever, um, best avoided at all costs yeah. uh, and not always easy right. <laughs> as well, yeah. but just don't engage, just do not engage, deflect at
0: yeah. every opportunity. Yeah. Um, um, you know, you
1: cost <laughs> someone their livelihood uh, by answering a simple question. So yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, um, that's
0: great, Wendy. On that, with, with challenges, what has been um, a challenge that stands out or comes first to mind that you had the biggest personal personal or, or professional growth from?
1: Oh, um, probably even as recent as the work we're doing with FIFA. Um, so, our work with FIFA around the accuracy of athlete tracking systems broadly. There's been so many challenges um, in that pathway from literally the day that we started that I think it's really made us as a group and and I'm just one one part of the group there um, that we're really good at troubleshooting on the spot. Um, we, We almost have in the back of their minds now things that could go wrong and partly that's from experience but when you're taking laboratory equipment out into the field in bright sunshine with Vicon cameras and having a 30 by 30 metre test area with 40 cameras and um, people running around outdoors with a groundsman who's about to turn sprinklers on ordering you off the pitch. Um, Often the work's done in another country where you don't speak the language, so you're trying to communicate with the participants that you've got who need to run in a certain way in certain drills, whether it's a circuit or a 2v2 or a 5v5. Um, you need them to go fast at times. Just being able to communicate, uh, and thankfully we have some Spanish speakers in our team where we've done uh, some of the, some of our work in Spain. But just all of those things coming together. But the, I guess the initial challenge was that we were the one that was selected by FIFA to get the gig. But the, the first challenge was actually getting there and pitching to them. Um, so. Um, process as it worked is I got an email uh, from someone at FIFA, Nicholas Evans, who I've got a really great working relationship with now, um, and it was, would you, would you be interested in putting a proposal in if we went down the path of trying to do a stadium-based tracking system test? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, he said, yeah, you, you've been recommended to us by, by a couple of members of our expert panel, um, one of whom I'd met before, one of whom I'd only conversed with once, sort of, or once or twice indirectly. Um, through potentially some other projects and um, so I guess that was nice but, but then I flew to Zurich um, and one of my colleagues uh, Fabio that we spoke off air about uh, briefly earlier he was on sabbatical in Italy so he drove up uh, with his wife and young child and, and met me in Zurich uh, and we pitched to FIFA for five hours getting absolutely grilled on what we'd put together and and part of what we were pitching was, was ideas that Sam Robinson had brought at the last minute. So we're making changes to our presentation. Sam wasn't available, so we couldn't even speak to him directly to answer some of the, the more detailed questions. So thinking on your feet confidently enough when you're not that confident was probably the biggest challenge in an environment where we thought, okay, this is, this is a pretty big stage now. Uh, if we can land this, yeah, if we can land this, well, my initial thought was if we can land this, we can keep doing this work and it's going to lead to a lot of other work for us as well. Um, but, yeah, the scope of it became clear pretty quickly that the solution that we pitched, we actually had no idea if it was going to work or not really because we'd never tried it on that scale. Uh, and, and FIFA recognised that, thankfully, uh, and then we were able to put in a pilot testing phase, which we did at Melbourne's, what's now Marvel Stadium, uh, before yep. doing a, a, a proper test event there. But that that was the ultimate challenge in terms of pitching. It's really a it's a business case. You know, you're almost a startup in a room with investors, if you like, and yeah, yeah, p- pitching a half-assed idea that you think is going to work, and th- and it sounds like it should work, but we actually don't know if it's going to work. Um, so I that that them. was an. Well, yeah, and then I thought I had, um, so I didn't get much sleep on the plane. Worked pretty much the whole way over, and was awake at three a.m. before pitching to them at nine a.m. for five hours. And uh, Steve Palmer, who works at the English Premier League, was was one of the members of the of the panel there deciding. And uh, apparently, I'd said a number of times, "Oh, we're confident this will work," da-da-da-da-da. and he just he didn't say a word for the first three hours, and he said, "Right." Rob, and he locked his gaze on me and he can burn holes through you with his gaze. He's a very smart, smart guy, a former player, but um, you know, Oxford educated, I think it's Oxford might be Cambridge, apologies Steve, if you're listening. but just a very clever guy and he'd been taking every single word in when I'm you know, stuttering over things, trying to go through the presentation because I was only half awake at that stage. So, yeah. so you're confident this will work. Oh so you think this will be okay <laughs> it just when I we walked out of there and I said to Pavia, I don't know, I think we might have blown it. Um, and I had a plane out of Zurich that afternoon. So it was literally a one-night-in-Zurich trip. And then, uh, So they'd asked a whole lot of questions. And part of, I guess, that work ethic bit uh, really kicked in. We, we had a, a head of school, a, a crazy Spanish guy, Alfonso, who was brilliant for us for a short period of time at VU. And I remember him saying to me in conversation that when you're working with industry you've got 48 hours to get back to them on something or else you're done. Just don't even bother. If you're, if you're later than 48 hours, you're dead to them. They've moved on. They've found someone else who can do it. And so a whole bunch of questions that FIFA had asked us, and quite rightly so, because our idea was it was out there uh, in terms yeah. of what we were pitching to them. But then well, their brief, back. well, their brief yeah. demanded that that was our response to it. Um, We've we since worked out that the brief wasn't the right brief, but it was the one they needed at the time to work out. Where we've got to now and and so I basically worked and I had some email on the plane on the way home so I was sending emails to all the boys at home in the, in the, in the team asking them questions trying to get papers to support what we were saying and so FIFA had a 10-page uh, response to questions asked uh, within 48 hours basically so um, Monday morning after so Friday afternoon I left Zurich by Monday morning uh, Melbourne time they had a 10-page response uh, to questions asked and I think that that I think that showed uh, to them that we're actually quite serious about this, that we do know our stuff, we can respond, we'll do things in a timely fashion, and you get one chance at that first uh, impression, Uh, and especially with an organisation that big, with that reach, 200 plus member associations and running the World Cup, amongst other things. So work ethic got us through rather than brains on that occasion, I think. Uh, Brains probably got us in the door in our reputation, but it was the ability to actually respond and for FIFA to say, you know what, you're the only people that put in that actually met the brief. Um, such, such was their crazy brief of doing it in a stadium with full games and tracking every player simultaneously against some sort of a gold standard. Well, it's, it's actually impossible. Um, but, uh, yeah, we pitched them something that was a good first step, which led to, to the rest of our work with them. And that was just one of the challenges um, First time in Spain doing a test event at uh, FC Barcelona and half of our equipment didn't get released from customs. Um, so we we had to come up with plans B, C, D, E, F, G on the ground, on the spot, um, literally going around Barcelona, purchasing new equipment uh, on the work credit card, hoping that the limit was satisfactory, that that would be achievable. Uh, and again, we, we made it work somehow, uh, but that was... I think it was the strength of the applied nature of the team. Um, So Grant Duffy, Kevin Ball, Sam Robinson, myself, used to being in that high pressure sport environment where you have to think quick and you have to respond. And for the next three days, we'd go back to the hotel about 10.30 at night, have dinner and literally debrief for about three hours, working through solutions to the problems of that day. And we had five days of testing, I think by the Probably about the afternoon of the fourth day, we were happy with where it was at, um, but it just took an enormous effort and brilliant applied minds in that setting. It's not just enough to be a good scientist. You have to be able to apply that in a stadium environment, um, which is not not easy to do. So, yeah, those those challenges, I think you you get there on adrenaline, but, but also having a, a bit of calmness around the group um, that you don't panic necessarily. You can be stressed,
0: but you don't panic
1: and you, you work through it and find a solution.
0: Yeah, wow, that's, that's an impressive feat that you guys went through. You'll be uh, <laughs> uh, mates for, for the rest of your life, no doubt, sharing these stories that you guys yeah. uh, shared <laughs> over this journey. But,
1: mm. um, yeah. if, if you and buy the Spanish, Spanish wine that. shared over the journey as well, that helps. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Mm. And how, how's the project going now? you, Five years in, is that right?
1: yeah so we're we're the test institute for fifa around the uh, the accuracy of athlete tracking systems so that's the the main project that we're involved with uh we're also doing some testing around virtual off sideline um that fifa want to use in the world cup this year and i think we're as of today about 37 days away from our next test event where we actually test the accuracy of that as well so that's optical based systems that can do limb tracking Um, because obviously there's scoring parts of the body in football or or soccer, as as we know it, probably more so in Australia. And so any scoring part of the body, you need to know the position of that relative to the second last defender and when the ball was kicked uh, to determine offside. Uh, And at the moment, if you need to go to the, the video referee, the process takes too long. So they want a, an almost real time solution, uh, which some of the optical pro- providers may well be able to, to do for FIFA, uh, with enough accuracy that it's actually worthwhile. So that's, that's the next challenge really for us. Um, and
0: how automatic do you think it will be? Like, is it something within five seconds? Uh,
1: yeah, it is. So the, wow. uh, well, it's yeah, it's quick enough that, you know, the, the idea is that the, the ref would then get, um, some sort of a a communication which on the watch or the headset or or whatever it was um, that I know that was offside or that wasn't offside or or whatever the case may be. So they'll let play go. And if it's offside, they can, they can bring it back. Um, But it it needs to be written into the rules of the game as well. So the, the testing and the change of the rules of the game needs to happen before the World Cup this year, or else they won't be able to use it. So there's, um, well, again, a bit more pressure
0: changing. coming. <laughs> yeah. Literal game changer. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of projects that we're now working on with FIFA that, that came from delivering early, I guess, on those first ones. Um, so some others around what normal player behavior looks like. So looking at match event and tracking data and, trying to get literally season's worth of data from, from some professional leagues to try and come up with a template of what football actually looks like. Um, and so that's a that's one that can be used in a whole variety of ways down the track. So um, that, that's a nice big project that's just sort of been on hold a little bit during the pandemic, just our access to data and, and and other things that we're trying to ramp up concurrently with the other stuff that we're doing as well. Yeah. So, just
0: to throw another yeah. challenge in.
1: Never a dull moment. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that, that's mm. impressive. Impressive work. So once the the test is done in thirty seven days time, is that the the final screen, or is there another? Um,
1: no, that that'll be it. But our results will take a little bit longer than than a day or so. Um, yep. So that that will take. Actually, we haven't agreed on a timeline yet, so I'd better not say what the, how long it would take. I might be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yep. the pressure will be on to get it done quickly, um, and, and partly because that we've got uh, another test event for the accuracy of tracking systems, so the generic-type project we've been doing with them for a number of years uh, scheduled for the end of May in Spain as well. So we need to get the virtual off-sideline one finished before we move on to the one at the end of May. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a constant stream of things, which is nice.
0: And with the current climate of the world, have you had to sort of consult remotely to be able to get some of this project off its feet?
1: Yeah, we did. for um, So the first phase of the virtual off-sideline testing last year was done in Manchester. Uh Uh, So we weren't able to travel, so that data was collected for us, um, which there's, there's just a whole lot of things that need to be done absolutely perfectly in that outdoor environment with Vicon cameras that some little things weren't done as, as we probably would have done them. And, and we did have a, a full playbook on this is exactly how it should be done. But, um, you know, you have people on site that, that make changes as they need to and as, they, as they're experienced in, in doing uh, on site. So that, that's created some problems at the analysis end for us. So that was the first one. And then the second one was the, the performance test. So the, the accuracy of tracking systems, which was done in Sevilla in August, I think. Yes, August. Uh, and that's the one that we've we've literally just finished. Uh, again, uh, contracted out the the Vicon capture, um, so the three dimensional motion capture system used, and just again the data is not quite as we would have had it, um, which then means that our process on, you know, the, the exact way that we collect it and then process it is quite well, reasonably streamlined, still incredibly labour intensive, but it's just ended up being a lot more labour intensive than than normal. So. With us and FIFA, I think, have realised that it's not ideal to subcontract that part out. It's actually better uh, and cheaper in the long run to actually fly us over and, and we do it uh, than have someone else that's based in Europe do it at this stage, yeah, at it. least. So yeah. so, yeah, we tried it, didn't quite work, but yeah. we, got, we got there as, as good as we could with, uh, with what we had to work with. Uh, and so, yeah, we move on.
0: And uh, the, the relationships that Victoria University has with these uh, high-performance sporting clubs like Western Bulldogs. Why do you think other clubs don't have that relationship? Clearly, it's been successful for West Bulldogs for, with their premiership success once the program had started and, and speak to students that have done the cadetship, they get a lot from it. So mm. it seems like everyone's winning um, with that partnership.
1: Yeah, I think, I think most universe, or most teams have some sort of a partnership with the university, probably not to the depth and breadth of the Bulldogs for you one. Um, so I think that, that most clubs have access to something from whether it's one or multiple universities. Um, I think partly, well, well, Professor Mike McKenna, who was my PhD supervisor that I mentioned earlier, he was actually a former Bulldogs player as well. So there was a passion there on, on the VU side really driving it at our end, which then drives it up through the hierarchy of the university and, and ultimately having the vice-chancellor as someone who recognised our strength in sport, but also the potential of a local partnership uh, that could really cement that Footscray region. Um, yeah. They're the things that need to be in place. Uh, so as a university, we're a small university compared to a lot. Uh, so we're not a group of eight university. We're not University of Melbourne that has strength and expertise across a whole range of different areas. We have defined areas of research strength and sport being one of them. And for you, one, I say, not, not the only one. Um, so it just it just fitted really well uh, with us. We also had a chancellor who was a former board member of the Western Bulldogs. So there's those top down as well as bottom up and hitting in the middle somewhere. Uh, I think made it made it work really well. Uh, and then again, work ethic uh, and people like Cam Falloon being open because uh, Aaron wasn't wasn't really there long enough for us to put a lot of things into 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 play. But you know, Cam being there for a couple of years was. It's probably where we really accelerated what we were doing, uh, which was really nice. So it's, it's people at all levels having that yeah. connection and, and wanting it to succeed. And, and our Vice-Chancellor famously declared that the Bulldogs Premiership year would be a Premiership well before uh, that time as well. So there was pressure on, I think, to deliver.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, very timely. We'll, yeah. we'll move into the, uh, the personal side of the podcast, mate. These are okay. a bit lighter, a bit of fun. Yep first, one is which movie or TV series can be a book has impacted you the most and why?
1: Ah, uh, okay. To narrow it to one, I think I'd probably go with a TV series, and and The West Wing uh, is one that I've gone back to many, many times. And I think, it, well, partly I think it's because I, I I do enjoy the you know the insight into politics. I know it's fictional, of course, um, but uh, just the, watching how they worked, how the group dynamic worked, how the, the hierarchy of, of decision-making worked and how people worked together, sometimes when they disagreed with each other really strongly on things, but were still able to come together. So I think that that's a big part of the interest uh, there. I mean, the, the dialogue in it is so well-written as well and so well-acted that it's enjoyable to watch, but that was one that I uh, have that really enjoyed. And I think I have watched the series, it's like seven series, I uh, probably watched them four times or, or more. Uh, just keep going back to them periodically. So that one, just around, I guess that way the groups interact and work, and you know, you've got experts coming in at at all different angles all the time on things. Whether it, you know, for them it was military experts or you know, experts in pollution or whatever, and how that then went up the decision making tree and how decisions were made. And you know they they won one, they they lost some. So it's a bit like sport in a way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that as you were explaining mm. it, the dynamics yeah. of people respectfully challenging each other and, and uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, oh, that's awesome. To check that one out. What about uh, favourite inspirational quote or <laughs> life motto? I'm not
1: sure if it's inspirational or not, but one I, I used to, to say to my cyclist when I was coaching a, a few times was, just remember if it didn't nearly kill you, sorry, if it didn't kill you, it probably nearly did. Um, and, and that you know, is a lighthearted way of, of saying that that was a really hard session that you just did. So it's a reinforcement of work, work ethic by them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's partly building belief as well. So it's, you know what, you've actually just done something that was really, really hard. So if you can do that in training, two things. One, your opposition may not have been doing that today. So you're, you're ahead of the game by, by doing that session. And remember, in races, when you think it's hard, Remember back to today, and nothing in races is going to be that hard ever again. Um, mm. This is the hardest training or event stuff you've ever done. So it didn't kill you. It probably nearly did, but it didn't kill you, and yeah. you, you got there by working hard. And I think you know with, there's who knows how many talented athletes out there. There's there's truckloads of them in every sport. There's a lot fewer talented athletes that work really hard consistently, um, and so that I think. Should always be, you can choose how hard you work. You can't choose how much talent you've got. Uh, and I think that's true in any walk of life. So that, that saying kind of fits into the academic world as well. Yeah. Um, don't, don't have to be or try to be the, the smartest person in the room all the time, but you can choose to be the hardest worker in the room. Um, and that's going to get you a long way in life, I think.
0: 100%. I oh, mm. love that. I'm going I'm to try and steal that one. When, it, when, a, when an athlete's looking a bit down after a hard workout, all yours. (laughs) A mental win. Uh, good reference point. Awesome. Um, What about these last two uh, uh, more revolved around COVID-free world, let's call it? uh, What's what's your favourite way to spend your day off?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's it's pretty simple things, I think. Um, So the COVID-free world, if it's a day off on a weekend, it probably involves kids' activities of some sort, so engaging with them in those is, is always enjoyable. In fact, my daughter had her first ever football training under 12s um, today. She's decided in the last few days she wants to play footy. It's like, okay, let's do that. Um, so that, that was fun. Um, but for me, it would also be getting some physical activity for myself. Um, so, you know, riding would, would be one of the key things that, that I just try and fit into my day uh, because it energises me. Uh, my wife disagrees a bit. She says I get tired and grumpy, but I like to feel like I'm energised. Uh, by by training myself, uh, and partly that's to to play around with ideas that I could then implement on others as well. But, yeah, some sort of physical activity, engagement with the kids in something, and the dog gets a walk in the, in the mix there somewhere along the line as well. So very, really simple things.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned you know, getting back into coaching and and playing around with some methods. So is that, yeah, is that something that you think is quite effective for coaches to play around with applying yeah. the methods on yourself and treat yourself like a bit of a lab?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, within the limitations of your own physical ability, of course, um, you yeah, know, there's the sessions that I can give cyclists that I can't do, uh, for example, but just knowing a little bit about progressions within a session or, or between sessions and how it might feel, um, you, you've got at least a point of reference there somewhere. Uh, and, you know, harder if you're a swimming coach who's not a good swimmer, for example, uh, but at least as a cycling coach, I can ride a bike, um, not to the level that the people I'm coaching can, but I can, I can ride a bike. So I think that, yeah, that does give you a little bit more insight into, into how things feel uh, at the other end, because otherwise you're relying on that feedback from your, from your athletes. Uh, some are good at giving it, some a little bit shy.
0: That makes sense. And, and what about favourite holiday destination? And oh
1: yeah um again it's a pretty simple one i mean i could i could say parts of spain just because i love love going there but um you know i haven't been there for a holiday i've only been there for work so far um so for me there's a place called cape patterson uh, down near one and inverlock uh, in gippsland that and we've got a caravan so we do a week or two down there every january and to me it just feels I just relax when I get there. Uh, we've got a beautiful beach right at the doorstep of the caravan and uh, good riding roads for me as well. Um, there's good food options, wine options, and it's just a nice, relaxed, quiet caravan park. So for me, it's Cape Patterson in Gippsland.
0: Re- charge in Gippsland. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and this one uh, is in terms of your work life, what are your pet peeves? What makes you, What makes you angry?
1: Uh, oh, I have to be careful here just you never know who's listening um look it's we work in a big organization um so part of the peeves are the layers of management that are imposed and I think universities are particularly good at imposing layers or bad at imposing layers depending on your perspective there just seems to be an incredible bureaucracy to get simple decisions made and, and access to information that you could then make business decisions yourself on. So I, I view what we do as a business. So when we're running a project that we're, is externally funded, we're getting paid to deliver on a project. So just having information at hand, if I want to employ more research assistants, well, what's my current budget sitting at? Can I just look that up myself or do I need to go to someone and ask and then wait and so on? Uh, getting contracts done is always a, a really lengthy, painful process when you know, perhaps it shouldn't be. So, it's support mechanisms or systems not really supporting is probably the, the biggest pet peeve uh, that I have uh, in the work life because it just yeah. creates work. And you have to micromanage the whole process then. And that's no fun for, for me. And it's certainly no fun for the people that I'm repeatedly emailing or calling either. So,
0: no, yeah. I can understand that that would that mm. would frustrate the hell out of me the especially when you just mm. want to you've got timelines to get things done <laughs> yeah yeah it's, uh, it's painful <laughs> yeah and uh, we'll, well thank you so much for, for jumping on the podcast Rob really got a lot out of it and um, it's been a full episode of understanding the academic side high performance sport background in your journey and and how important it is to like you said, network, get experiences early, and, and of course work hard, um, and and persist with with what you want to do. We'll wrap it up with the last question. What what are you excited about for two thousand and twenty two? We're now in February, so yeah, uh, look, i have early I've, part of the I've, year.
1: I'm well. There's a number of things. International travel uh, for work is is one thing to be excited about. But I'm I'm just commencing uh, coaching a young cyclist that has enormous potential and. Uh, I'm really excited about how we can um, try and help him realise some of that potential. So that that for me has really got me energised and charged about what can we do to help this kid who could be anything uh, with the right pathway. So, yeah, it's exciting.
0: With with that, like just so we get an idea of how your week works, like with the the role that you have with the Fever program, how do you have time? You've got family as well, but how, how do you have time to coach someone at that level? Mark, is it something you're doing, every, is it four days a week? Is it very remote and you're doing the programming sort of consulting side of things? What does the dynamic look like?
1: Yeah, look, it's, it's different. You know, I've got some riders who are based in London, for example, uh, that I'm yep. coaching, so that's done remotely and it's occasional Zoom calls and, and so on. Uh, but with this young kid, he, he lives locally, um, so that'll be a lot more hands-on and, uh, and, and time. And I guess part of the, the life of an academic, your time is flexible to a point. So I'm not mm-hmm. engaged in any teaching at the university. So I'm not, you know, beholden to a timetable. So it's it's getting the job done becomes important. So, you know, you, you work when you need to work, basically. So you fit it in uh, because you choose to fit it in. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, for me, it's a it's very much a passion project going back to coaching um, because I love it. You know, it's once a coach, always a coach, I think. So, uh, yeah, I think you just find time and, and make it work.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you, mate. Thanks again for jumping on. Any last no words? If people want to find you and get in touch, uh, where's the best place to, to get in contact?
1: Uh, probably uh, email is probably best. So rob at trackvu.com is probably the, the simplest one uh, to remember. And, and yeah, that'll, that'll certainly get through to me and, and happy to chat uh, or LinkedIn or Twitter or you know, wherever, you, wherever you need to find me.
0: All right, I'll add those three in the show notes for those listening Excellent. to get in touch. Uh, thank you for listening, guys. No doubt you enjoyed this episode. Make sure if you tuned in late to watch the YouTube recording, and we'll post the podcast episode in the next coming weeks. Our next live pair like a pro live chat show will be a collaborative event with eight facility owners around the country, uh, high-performance sports or so those working with athletes in the private sector, and it'll be bite-sized uh, discussions, so ten minutes from each guest. So make sure to tune in. That will be on the twenty-four of February at 8.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Time. I'll see you guys then. Cheers, Rob. Thanks, Jack. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up?
3: Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes,
0: we yeah, like game, game changes,
3: right? changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength and conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man love that. Uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So... I'll handle it over to you, Ramita, to ask your question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um do physically that um you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career Uh, what are some
4: of those things Mm, yeah good question um yeah so i suppose with perspective on life um that sort of point um it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and and didn't probably have that as much um, when i was younger um I suppose, one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day, just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life in football or, you know, it might be whatever, as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um, yeah. so that's that's been huge um I think I wish back then when I was younger I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and um, you know I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of, didn't have that fear, fear of you know asking a silly question or fear of judgment it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker um and yeah, and yeah like just yeah being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find it's just yeah there's so many people like great people out there knowledgeable people to learn off
0: and there's plenty more where that came from if you would like to learn more then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.